Well, friends, just before I, I do go into my, uh, my message uh, this evening, I'm sure, like me, you have felt very much blessed and encouraged by the singing and the musicians and those helping on the sound and the lights, and also Matt uh, Vosper, who's been conducting. So can we just show our appreciation for all this hard work? Well, the last passage that we heard read from Luke's gospel is uh, what I'm going to be basing uh, the talk around, uh, based on, on joy to the world, the Lord has come. It was a cold January morning when a man stood outside a metro station in Washington, D.C., and he started to play the violin. He played six Bach pieces for about 45 minutes during the rush hour. Thousands of people went through the station, most of them on their way to work, some of them Christmas shoppers. Three minutes went by, and a middle-aged man noticed that there was a musician playing. He slowed his pace and stopped for a few seconds and then hurried off. A minute later, the violinist received his first dollar tip from a woman who threw the money in without stopping. A few minutes later, someone leaned against the wall to listen to him, but the man looked at his watch and then started to walk off. The one who paid the most attention was a three-year-old boy. His mother dragged him along, but the child stopped and looked at the violinist. Finally, the mother pushed hard and the child continued to walk, turning his head all the time to look at him. In the 45 minutes the musician played, only six people stopped and stayed for a while. About 20 gave him money, but continued to walk at their normal pace. He collected $32 in all. When he finished playing and silence took over, no one noticed. No one applauded, nor was there any recognition. No one knew it, but the violinist was Joshua Bell, one of the top violinists in the world. He played one of the most intricate pieces of music ever written on a violin worth $3.5 million. Two days before his playing in the subway, Joshua Bell sold out at a theater in Boston. The seats cost $100 each. Joshua Bell, playing incognito in the metro station, was organized by the Washington Post as part of a social experiment about the perception and priorities of people. In a commonplace environment, at an inappropriate hour, do we perceive beauty? Do we stop to appreciate it? For if we do not have a moment to stop to listen to one of the finest classical musicians in the world, playing some of the most elegant music ever written on one of the most valuable violins ever made, how many other things are we missing? Those busy shoppers and commuters largely ignored 
the great violinist. They had airbrushed him out into the background of their lives. Tell me, is that not our world's attitude to Jesus Christ of Nazareth? At Christmas, we scurry around from one shop to the next, or one Amazon shopping page to the next, buying gifts, and yet we can miss entirely the true gift which God wanted to offer this world in His Son, Jesus Christ. And so this evening, we pause to remember and reflect on the fact that 2,000 years ago, the most important visitor of the highest kind left His throne in heaven to be born on earth, to be this world's Savior. And the first joy is this, the joy of knowing that this is real. Now, we all know the classic beginning of fairy tales, once upon a time in a land far, far away. We use that particular opening to create a setting for a story that we all know right from the very start never really happened. But by contrast, Luke, who is the writer of this gospel, isn't writing fairy tales here. For the birth of Jesus is not the thing of fantasy. No, Luke is framing the story of Jesus' birth in its political and historical setting. He is recording reality, not fantasy. At the beginning of his gospel, Luke has undertaken careful research and interviewed many eyewitnesses. The affirmations that he is making here are affirmations of history. He writes this, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place whilst Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went from their own town to register. And so Joseph went up to the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David. Caesar Augustus was Octavian, the great nephew of Julius Caesar. Octavian was the first Roman ever emperor ever to be given that title of Augustus, which means holy or revered, a title solely reserved for gods. And that's what subsequent Roman emperors thought that they were. They thought they were gods. But little did Rome or the world know it at the time, but the true God of the universe was about to enter our world this night. Luke says that the census took place whilst Quirinius was governor of Syria. And so setting the birth narrative of Jesus is placed squarely in the context of real secular human history. There really was a Caesar Augustus. There really was a Quirinius. There really was a Joseph and Mary. There really was a Jesus. Luke is showing us that Jesus' birth is taking place at an identifiable time and place. This is hardly the stuff of fairy tales in a galaxy far, far away. No, this is 
our history. Josephus, a Jewish historian from the first century, makes mention of the, the provincial census that took place by Quirinius, the governor of Syria. And men had to register in their hometown, which meant that Joseph and his pregnant wife Mary had to make the long, arduous, 80-mile journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem. In our passage, the birth of Jesus is recorded in just a handful of words. It says this, whilst they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available to them. When Jesus was born that first Christmas, royalty of the highest kind entered our world, but our world did not realize it at the time. Jesus, who is the eternal Son of God, co-equal with God the Father and the Holy Spirit, took on flesh and became one of us. He entered our world as a fragile, dependent baby. Through Jesus, God was coming to us in person, not in a vision, but in a body, and not in the body of a full-grown man that was beamed down to earth. Instead, he came in the developing cells of a human fetus, which grew inside Mary until the moment of his birth, when Jesus took his first breath on our planet as one of us. God took on flesh and became a man. He who was great became small. He who was powerful became weak. He who was rich became poor. In his book, The Jesus I Never Knew, Philip Yancey contrasts the humility that characterized Jesus' royal visit to planet Earth with the prestigious image associated with world rulers of today. He writes this, Queen Elizabeth visited the United States, and reporters delighted in spelling out the, the logistics, logistics involved with this. Her luggage weighed over 4,000 pounds and included two outfits for every occasion, a mourning outfit in case somebody died, 40 pints of plasma, white kid leather toilet seat covers, and she brought along her own hairdresser, two valets, and a host of other attendants. A brief visit of royalty to a foreign country can easily cost $30 million. In contrast, God's visit to earth took place in an animal shelter with no attendants present and nowhere to lay the newborn king's head but in an animal feeding trough. It's certainly not the place that you and I would have chosen to place a child and neither would have Joseph and Mary. They wouldn't have chosen it either. But you see, they were desperate because despite Mary's imminent state of pregnancy, Joseph and Mary couldn't find anywhere else to stay in Bethlehem that night. No one, you see, was willing to sacrifice their own comfort for them. No one was willing to inconvenience themselves to make room for Jesus. 
As someone once said, Jesus sought entry into, an overcrowded, into the overcrowded hearts of those around him, but he could not find it. And sadly, that's true even today. Jesus Christ is still searching for room within the hearts of people in the 21st century. But people continue to shut him out. They're too preoccupied with other things which they regard of being far greater importance and value than Jesus. They substitute God's greatest gift of eternal life offered in Jesus with the man-made gifts that are temporal and do not ultimately satisfy. Today's world wants entertainment, not Emmanuel. They want consumerism, not Christ. They want Santa, not a Savior. And so it is that people today continue to relegate Jesus to the margins of their life as an irrelevance, rather than valuing him as the world's greatest treasure. Yes, the door of many a heart still remains shut to Jesus, just like in the time of his birth. And the fact that there was no room for him in the inn that night was symbolic of what would happen to Jesus throughout his entire life. Sadly, the only place where room was ever deliberately made for Jesus was on a cruel Roman cross. On that day, the innocent died in the place of the guilty. But then, that is the whole reason why Jesus came to this earth in the first place, to die in place of the guilty. Luke's gospel pans out from Mary and Joseph onto the hillside surrounding Bethlehem, where he documents the following, the joy of knowing that you and I matter. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord, and this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Now, to whom would you think God would send the first announcement of the birth of his son to? Well, you might think that he would announce it to King Herod in his palace, or perhaps the high priest in the temple in Jerusalem, or to someone who was famous and well-positioned in society. But no, he first announces the news of the birth of his son to lowly shepherds. Why did God do that? Well, you see, God was wanting to make a statement to the world that night that no one was insignificant to him. Everyone mattered. Whoever they were, whoever, whatever they have done, no one was beyond God's redemptive reach 
if they chose to respond to his son, Jesus. God bypassed those with power and influence, with those who had high positions and status, and he announced the arrival of his son to lowly shepherds working on a night shift whilst the world slept. However insignificant these shepherds felt their life had been up until now, God was making the statement that they mattered to him. And this was reflected throughout the whole of Jesus' life, where he went out of his way to draw alongside those who were marginalized, outcasts, and failures in society, so that however unworthy and however distant someone felt from their Creator, God was opening up a doorway of heaven and saying, I want you to step through that doorway, through my Son, and come to me to be saved because you matter to me. Let me illustrate it this way. Eight years ago, I dropped off my oldest son to a swimming pool in Long Eaton. And as I was driving back home past the shops, a lorry ran over a piece of paper that was lying in the gutter, and it flicked up into the air before it fluttered down into the middle of the road. Now, I noticed that the piece of paper was a distinctive color of purple, and I had a hunch that I knew what it was. I immediately pulled over into the nearest uh, road that I could find. I ran back to see if it was still there, and it was. A few more cars and lorries ran over it, but eventually I diced death, ran into the middle of the road, picked up the piece of paper, Now, it was rather soiled, ragged, worse for the wear, but when I turned it over, Her Majesty the Queen's face beamed at me, and I beamed back at her (laughs) with great joy. It was a 20-pound note. And as I was celebrating my find, find, punching the air, I turned around and saw that I was standing outside a Ladbrokes betting office. (laughs) And just at that moment, my wife and my youngest son passed by in the car. (laughs) It did take some explaining, but eventually they believed me that I had actually found the 20-pound note and not just had a sneaky little flutter on the horses. Why on earth did I stop? for a dusty piece of paper from a gutter. Because I knew, and so do you, that however grubby and dirty and torn it was, it had never lost its true value. It was still of value. That is how God looks at you. Every one of you, in this room, and in this world. That's how he views us. However far short you have fallen, however bruised and damaged and broken by life about what others have done to you, or however great a pool of tears that you live under because of your own foolishness and folly, however dirty and unclean you feel you have become, 
however insignificant you might feel you are in this world, you have never once lost your true value to God. Friends, whoever you are, know this. Every person in this room has let God down. We have, as a whole human race, failed Him at some points in our life, but we have not lost our true value to Him. Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost, to seek and to mend that which was broken, and to restore us into a right relationship with our Creator. He came for those who recognize that they have failed. The very things that you would have thought should cause Jesus to turn his back on us actually drew him to us because Jesus came into this world to seek and to save those who felt lost and far from God. And finally, there is the joy, not only that we matter, but the joy of knowing forgiveness and peace with God. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. You know, you only need a Savior if there is something that you need to be saved from. And there is. We have all failed to live the life that God intended us to. You know, last week, my wife and I watched the film Wonka at the cinema. I really enjoyed it. But imagine if it wasn't Wonka that was being screened, but a, a film that captured the whole of my life including my thought life, for all the public to see. What if it was your life that was being screened? I'm sure that there would be parts where you and I would feel very proud, such as sporting achievements. Actually, I've got none, so some of you probably have. But if it was sporting achievements, or maybe musical talents, or your acts of kindness and generosity to people, I'm sure you'd be very, very comfortable watching that with others. But I'm sure every one of us would feel slightly more uncomfortable, even embarrassed and shamed, if the bad bits of our life were being broadcast too. The unkind words said in a person's absence, the put-down of others, our selfish actions, and the people who we have hurt and wounded. You see, however decent we feel that our lives are, when it is viewed by a holy God, He sees it all, the private and the public, the good, the bad, and the downright ugly. And there is much in our lives that we would be ashamed of, enough evidence to condemn each one of us and forbid us entry into His holy presence in heaven. That is why every single one of us in this room need Jesus Christ as our Savior. 
That is why the angel said, I bring you good news to compensate for all of this bad news that I've just been mentioning. There is good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today, a Savior is born. A Savior. The term literally means to be liberated, to be set free and brought into a spacious place. And that's what Jesus Christ brings, freedom, freedom from guilt, freedom from our past mistakes, freedom from God's judgment and punishment against our sin, and freedom to enjoy a new and living relationship with God as our Heavenly Father, and to know the certainty of the joys of heaven when we take our final breath on this planet that freedom was purchased at the cross when Jesus Christ, Christ died for our sin, sin. Jesus took personal responsibility for all of our wrongs, paying the penalty for our rebellion against God, offering us forgiveness and eternal life with God. When you have grasped all that Christ has done for you, it is the most liberating thing ever. I remember one cold November evening back in 1985, not 1885, 1985, I had just become a Christian, and the minister had invited a few of us into his home for a, a Bible study on forgiveness. He handed us all out a piece of paper and a pen, and he asked us to write down all the things that we most regret doing in life, things that we are so ashamed of. <clears throat> well, I have to say that I felt rather nervous about this because I knew that one of the biggest gossips in my small town of Stonehaven happened to be in that room. And, uh, and I thought, well, I'm going to make sure they don't see it. So I covered up my bit of paper with my hand, and I began writing some of the things that I knew I had been ashamed of doing in my life. And uh, I managed to fill both sides of the paper. Then the minister asked us to take the piece of paper and to fold it up, which, because he was a minister, we all duly did. We did what he said. And then he held up a paper cup and he said, now pop it into that. And we all gingerly let go of our pieces of paper. And he held it and he just looked at us and tossed it around with his fingers. And I just thought for a moment, is this some kind of weird Christian game where he goes, right, we've all got to guess who this is, a bit like charades. <laughs> All I was thinking was, Lord, please don't let him read out mine. Don't let him read out mine. The, the biggest gossip in the town is here in the room. My granny's budgie will get to know about this. Please don't let him read out mine. Now, he could have said to us, guys, off you go. Enjoy your evening's rest. I'll look after this. I wouldn't have slept a wink. But instead, what he did do was this. He said, I want you to understand that when you accepted Christ into your life as your Savior, this is what God has done with your life of sin. And he threw it behind him 
into an open fire. And we all breathed a sigh of relief. And I stayed behind just to sweep up any little bits that might have <laughs> wafted out. I can tell you that that cold November evening, looking up into the night sky, I felt as if I was floating on air going home, bunching the air saying, yes, Lord, that's what you've done. Total forgiveness, total cleansing. I've been made new by your grace and your kindness and through the sacrifice of Christ. I felt the liberty of a Savior in my life. The good news that was announced back then to the shepherds on the hillside. Oh, I felt as if I was walking on air. Friends, I could understand in a deeper way that Jesus had obliterated the record of my sins, a record of my regrets and failures. I felt free forgiven, cleansed, loved. I was transformed from that moment on. And God wants to do that for you. He wants you to know this, to enter into the joy of it, to see Christ in all his majesty for who he is, the savior of the world. You know, in the temple, morning and evening, a perfect lamb without spot or blemish would be taken by the priests to the temple to be slaughtered as a sin offering. Many of these flocks were pastured out on the hillsides of Bethlehem. So it's an interesting thought that the shepherds who were there to first witness the birth of lambs used for the sin offering in the temple of Jerusalem were the first to witness the birth of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world the shepherds left their busy lives in order to enter that place where Jesus lay. And they worshipped him. Their lives were changed from that moment on. They had seen and embraced the Savior. And the lives of millions have been changed who still come to him and accept Christ as their Lord and Savior too. So tell me, this evening, will you respond to him as the shepherds did, as I did, and as of millions of others throughout the centuries have done? Will you bow your knee to this Jesus and ask him into your life for his forgiveness? Let's pray. And in the silence 
whoever you are, God knows you. He knows everything about you. You might think he would shun you, but he's drawing close to you. You might think you've done too much wrong in your life, but Jesus is the friend of sinners. He came for you. He loves you. He wants you to be with him. Whoever you are, however far you have kept him at arm's length, this night, ask him into your life as your Savior. Ask him to forgive you. Ask the risen Lord Jesus to walk with you throughout your life as your Savior, your Lord, and your friend. You will never regret it. Lord, apply these words, I pray, by the power of your Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen.